All right, good morning. I want to welcome you today. How are you doing? Good. You're in a cool space out of the heat. I'm feeling pretty good about that. So we are really glad to have you here today, especially if you're a guest at Trinity Church. I want to especially welcome you. My name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor and uh, just so excited to be with you today. You are with us in week six of a series we've called Playlist, looking through selected psalms this summer. And it has been such a great journey. I just want to take a moment, too, to thank Especially, we have an incredible staff, but especially people like Hilke and Bill who've been preaching this summer to help me out. Can we thank them for a minute? They've done a great job. And that's just given me the ability to be away, be refreshed. I'm real excited to get to open God's word with you today. If you have a Bible, Psalm 73 is where we're going to be. You can find your way there. If you have uh, your Trinity this week, you'll see notes, this gray color. If you want to get those out, have those ready. They'll just help you track with us, kind of stay on track with kind of where we're at uh, throughout the message. So if you want to have those available. Well, before we get into that, one thing I'm excited about, just as Hilke was sharing, just the great week, we, I got a, the privilege of taking my daughter Aaliyah down to visit our students and counselors at Hume San Diego. It's a rough thing when you got to go hang out at Point Loma for the day. It's a gorgeous campus and just a great place to do camp. But it was really fun to hear story after story of just the way that God was on the move. And so I was just so excited that Again, that you gave financially and students were able to go and just the things that God did in the heart. So you guys, I'm grateful that you just were so responsive during the week. Um, besides that, though, our middle school students are going to camp this week. And we are really excited. They go to Camp Pondo. They wouldn't want me to say, tell you this, but Dan and Becky um, Skipper lead Pondo Camp. They're part of our church. We love them. And we love the camp, and we're excited about them going up. And I would say that the reason why last week at Hume San Diego was so successful in terms of just spiritual response was because of your prayers. This time last Sunday, we asked you to pray for our high school students. I want to do the very same thing. Would you be praying for our middle school students this week? Would you be praying that the way that God would want to intersect with them in just a way, like Hilke said, it's just different. Something about being at camp, you're off your pen, you're in a place where you're available to respond in ways that you often aren't when you're just in kind of normal settings of life. We're just grateful for camp, and we love Camp Pondo. So just be praying for them this week. They leave tomorrow morning. They'll be back on Friday, and just be praying that God would just do a great work in lives. And we're excited for them being up there and just the great things that we look forward to. Well, in our series today, what we've been doing is we've been looking at these psalms, and we've kind of unearthed a couple of truths that have been kind of abiding as we've gone through. What we've seen is that the people of God are a praying people and a singing people. That is really the stuff of psalms. Psalms are written prayers as well as lyrics to songs of worship, and they are what God's people have been praying and singing literally for millennia. So we join into that, and what we've seen is the Psalms are very much there for us. As we've been looking at them, what you found week over week is a relatability. Like, I, I've understood that about God, or I'm, I, I can connect to that idea of what the psalmist was going through. And the phrase that we've been using over the summer is that you can find yourself in the Psalms, meaning they're so easy to connect to and relate to. You go, I, I get that. I, I feel what that is like. And, and our goal this summer is not just to relate to the Psalms, but then in turn, to be able to say, God, I want to align my heart. I want to align my decisions. I want to align my affections with the psalmist. So we're not only saying these psalms are relatable in terms of the issues that they're covering, but in terms of also being able to say, God, align my heartbeat so it beats like that. These are ways that I can approach God and ways I should respond to him. 
So it's just been, I've just been so blessed. I've been able to be here, though I haven't preached every week. I've been able to be here and hear the different messages and just grateful for what God's teaching us as a church. And today, today is just a new step related in this series, related to this vulnerability and honesty. We're going to hear from a guy named Asaph, A-S-A-P-H, Asaph today. And what we're going to hear is, we're going to hear how he had come out to the ledge. Which, by the way, some of you talk to me and say, Todd, you get dangerously close to the edge of that stage all the time. I'm okay. I haven't fallen yet, okay? But, um, but this is what Asaph did in his heart in terms of being drawn away from God, being interested and drawn to the things of this world. Asaph said, I got to the ledge, and I was looking over, trying to figure out what I was supposed to do. What would be my next step? We're going to see in a very just powerfully vulnerable way Asaph is able to share with us something that we've probably felt, maybe are actually walking in today, and we'll be able to relate to, and we'll be able to see what changed his mind. We'll see how his perspective changed. So here's what our now what idea is this week. What are we supposed to do with today's message? Is that we're to understand and believe God's lasting promises, and that they will help you cling to him and avoid what is futile. When you understand and when you believe God's lasting promises, they help you cling to him and they keep you from, they allow you to avoid giving into things that are futile. So we're in Psalm 73 today. Let's begin in verse one. It says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I got to the ledge. I'd almost fallen fallen down the side. I had nearly lost my foothold. Watch, for I envied the wicked or the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We're talking about a guy today named Asaph. He's credited with writing Psalm 50 and then Psalm 73 to 83. So about a dozen Psalms are to his name uh, that we see in the text. And let me tell you a little bit about him. So for a little context, in your notes, Asaph was actually one of the Levites appointed by King David to be a worship leader. So he was basically a worship leader in the tabernacle choir. And we see this, it's like in, I think it's in um, 2 Samuel 16, as David's getting his teams in order, uh, this group of worship leaders led by Asaph is uh, one of the predominant teams he mentions. And and what's kind of interesting then is when you understand who he is, you not only will have a powerful perspective looking at this psalm today, but then you kind of even know there have always been worship leaders, A definition that we use a lot with Bill and Chris and I, as we talk about maybe an easy way to understand worship is what you're preoccupied with. And our hope is when you come here on a Sunday, and not just Sunday, we hope it's all throughout the week, but when you come on a Sunday that in this, quote, worship service, you are being preoccupied with the kinds of things God would want you to think of, the things that God would want your heart to beat for. So worship leaders, and, and what we find in the scriptures are what we call, the, the Bible calls sons of Asaph. And what we find them, they weren't necessarily the literal um, genetic sons of Asaph, but they were a guild. They were a collective of other worship leaders who helped continue in the, in the ultimately not just in the tabernacle, but later on in the temple, help people be preoccupied with God. So we would even say today that our worship leaders who've been on this stage and who are throughout all of our different ministries at Trinity Church, they would be called the sons and daughters, as it were, of Asaph, continuing to help people be preoccupied with who God is. So now that we know a little bit of his background, now that actually even helps the tension all the more. 
Because Asaph wasn't just some guy. Asaph, by vocation and calling, helped call people into worship, helped them be preoccupied with God. But he is making an incredible confession. I myself had gotten to the edge. I was on the ledge looking over. I'd almost lost my foothold because why? I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He starts right out of the gate. He's telling us today, what is this tension? What's the conflict that he's dealing with? And when I look at that, I kind of go, man, how relatable is that? I would think that most in this room have had at least a season or seasons where in your mind you have thought, you know what, God, it is really hard following you. It is really hard, the sequence of trials and differences and challenges that I face being a follower of Jesus. And in light of that, when I see the way that the people in my relational world who don't know God, when I see the way that people in the media who don't know God live, that looks attractive. This looks like something I want to exchange. Talk about raw, talk about real, talk about authentic. Right out of the gate, he's saying, this is where I was. This is what I struggled with. I wouldn't limit it to this one and only season for sure, but I was thinking about seasons in my life when I had envied the way of people who were godless. And I thought back to high school. And I thought back, I had a group of friends my last couple of years of high school, junior and senior year, who their Friday nights consisted of wild parties, lots of girls, lots of beer. And I remember when I would hear their stories on Monday. Monday we'd gather before class or just walking through the halls and just asking, how was your weekend? And they would tell these incredible things, these wild parties that they threw at so-and-so's house and all the keggers that were here and all this stuff going on. And I remember hearing about that and then contrasting that with my incredible weekend of a scavenger hunt with my youth group. <laughs> and I'm thinking, something's not mixing here. And as I would hear those things, there was in my heart, there was an envy, there was a sense of, man, I wonder what that world is like. I wonder what that would be like to live in those settings and with those people and in those times, there was definitely a sense of envy that I dealt with. And maybe you're here today and you would say, yeah, maybe that wasn't just high school. It, wasn't, it isn't for me, I wanna be honest about that. That's just one example, but maybe you're here today and maybe more it's like envying the financial resources of someone who steps on or over anyone in their way. You see, financial wealth is not the issue today, it's how you get it. That's what this psalm is gonna talk about again and again. These people that Asaph is envying are people he knows are outside of God's design. Totally living in godless ways, these are the people he envies and he knows there's a problem with me even envying them. What is wrong with this situation? Maybe it's envying someone who cheats on a spouse with somebody on the side. Maybe it's envying someone who receives the credit or promotion for people who work under them and gives them none of the praise and acclamation but just receives it for themselves. And as a result, they're promoted and other people just simply are their dogs. It's important to note that this wasn't just a cursory envy, meaning it wasn't just one Wednesday morning that Asaph woke up and thought, I really envy this group of people. This envy pushed him so much that here he is, a worship leader in the house of God, and he says, I was at the ledge looking over, ready to abandon my faith, walk away from God, because I so badly wanted what they had. That's intense, and that's gut level. This is a significant interior struggle for him that wasn't quickly or easily resolved with just a passing desire or interest. 
And I want you to see this. Remember what we've been saying all along throughout this series, that the Psalms are written for you. The Psalms are written for you to find yourself in them. The relatability is so incredibly powerful. As we engage today, what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to be honest, because that's what you got to appreciate about Asaph. Asaph is going to say things today that you and I have thought but didn't know we could ever let on. And I want you to appreciate not only his honesty, but the ability just between you and God today in this space to at least take off the veneer and be a bit transparent. Be a bit vulnerable with some of the things and places where you're really at rather than what you like to portray. He goes on to admit what it was like, how the arrogant and the wicked do live, and why he had caused a desire in him for their lifestyles. Verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. That's a powerful image. They clothe themselves in violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity, and their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Listen to this line. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Talk about pride. Talk about arrogance. Therefore, their people turn to them, and they drink up waters in abundance, meaning the people who are their followers, they seem to benefit from their wickedness. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. So here is Asaph, and you have to think about him, especially maybe as a worship leader. You're trying to figure out how did he know these people? Like today we have the internet, right? We know everything. I mean, we don't, but we think we do. We know everything. So how would Asaph, a guy pre-internet, pre-cell phone, pre-newspaper, know about the wicked? And what he had seen from whatever observable way, maybe it was people in his relational world, maybe it was people within the city of Jerusalem, maybe it was Jerusalem's enemies, I'm not sure, but somehow objectively, or meaning from the outside looking in, he could see that these people had these things, and not just saw that they had them, but envied them. He begins by noting some of the physical advantages that they face, they have good health, Their lives are not plagued with the types of problems that those who choose to honor God face. I mean, what he's basically describing is a group of people who just are so set, they're so comfortable. And what's interesting is, is that the way that sometimes we see things in media, meaning it's probably not true of someone you do life with that you would come to this conclusion, but the caricature of people that we see in the media looks as though they just have it all together. There are no issues, they don't face anything. The biggest problem was they wore the wrong outfit for the photo shoot. Right? I mean, it's just like, what a life. You know, that would be great. And within that, it sounds, um, he mentions then some of the notorious things, not just the benefits that they experience, but then he mentions the wicked things they do. It was interesting to me when I was thinking about this, uh, the, the last phrase within this whole thing is, who knows? You know, God doesn't even know. He doesn't even seem to be paying attention. Do you think about what we did last weekend? Bill was talking about Psalm 139 and how God knows every intricate piece of all of our lives, yet there was a group of people living as though God had no idea, no clue. This is the kind of lifestyles they were living, the actions they had. They were proud. They were violent people. They have calloused hearts, limitless evil imaginations. They speak with malice. They threaten oppression, and then their pride is to the moon. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. 
So here's the assumption I would want you to get on track with today with Asaph, and it's probably your own assumption. Here's Asaph, a law, when I say law abiding, I don't mean like the laws of America law, I mean the law. The law given by God is a good Jewish man. He would have been very much in tune with God's uh, intended way that we live. And so when he knows the law, and he not only knows the law, but knows the consequences of living a life apart from it, his assumption would be that these people would be punished and corrected by God. But he writes it just the opposite, just the opposite of condemnation, but instead of that of reward. These people seem to be very well off. Things are good for them. Their people, even their followers, they enjoy violence and they clamor for more. And due to the lack of punishment, assuming that Yahweh has no idea of what they're doing and isn't paying attention. He finishes his writing by saying that the wicked are like they're always carefree and amassing more and more wealth. It's just the, they just seem to have it all. What is wrong with this picture? Here's a question I have for you today. The, the description of the wicked, of the arrogant, is Asaph's description true? Do people who live apart from God have this comfortable life without problems? And I would say, you know what, they don't. That's actually not true. And, and the reason I would know that, I would know that based on the people in my relational world that I do life with that are apart from God at this time, and I see not just the, the typical challenges that we all face on a fallen planet, I see the consequences. I see the consequences of choices that they make and the realities of what they have to deal with, and I go, no, their life is not problem-free. They have plenty of issues. And here's an important thing I want you to see today. Because if you were to ask some of even the people that Asaph was describing, do you have challenges? I think they would have been the first to say, yeah, there's some serious problems with my life. But here's the point. When you become someone who envies, when you become someone who looks at another person's situation and so desperately wants it, you are doing that based on a caricature of who they are, not reality. What you envy is not something they really have. It's what you think they have and how you think life for them works. You don't think that these people that Asaph was talking about, that they suffered consequences for treating people brutally? There's always consequence for that. You don't think that they live with some regrets over the relationships that they had burned by stepping on and over people to get what they wanted? Absolutely. You don't think they had basic human issues of even like the way they raise their kids and dealing with kids who wouldn't listen to what they say and even potty training? Everyone deals with that. Okay, you don't escape that just because you're this godless, wicked person. Here's what I really want you to see today. Here in your note, here, notes, here's the point. When you envy someone else's life, you only see the things that are enviable and are blind to the other realities they face. When you envy someone, when you get in a position where you're looking from the outside in and saying, I really want that, you're only seeing what you want to see. And watch this, what you want, they don't even have. It's a facade, it's a picture in your mind that you've developed that isn't even reality itself. I think about my friends and those same ones that would boast about the incredible time they had on Friday night. Guess what on Monday we never talked about? We never talked about their hangover. We never talked about them puking in a toilet. We never talked about the relationships that they blew up because they were cheating on girlfriends. That never came up on Monday, only how great the party was on Friday. And I listened to that caricature and I began to buy it. That's really what I would like too. 
Asaph saw some version in his mind that he'd created, but it wasn't reality. Pornography finds its greatest appeal in this idea, portraying a life that no one lives yet making it look attainable. This is the problem with envy. It totally clouds truth and just creates a picture of something we think we want. Now, what did Asaph do? He had this dissonance. He, remember we said, theoretically, he knew there's a right way to live. Theoretically, I know God is good, but I'm really struggling because these godless people seem to be doing so well. What did that produce in him? Well, watch this. It produced the same thing it does in you. Deep frustration. Look at verse 13. Asaph writes, surely in vain. I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence all day long. I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Can I just say, wow. If you're here today and you would say a major criticism that you have against people who say that they're Christians or are followers of Jesus is that they're all veneer, they're all fake, they're all hypocrites. Can I just say, there's at least one point in the Bible, let's at least give this, there's at least one time in the Bible when someone was honest. I'm gonna tell you there's a whole bunch more, but if just for today, Asaph says, God, I see all the things that the wicked enjoy, I'm doing these things for you, yet I am afflicted, it's all in vain, there's no value to this. That's about as honest as anyone gets about anything. And you know what I wanna tell you today? I want to say praise God for Psalm 73. I want to say praise God that God put together his book for you and me in such a way that we could relate to it and we could say, God, I've never even wanted to admit that, but that's how I feel. That's how I felt. Or maybe that's how I'm going to feel. But God, you are honest, you are authentic, you are vulnerable, and you put this out there for me to understand, for me to, in a sense, have a voice of something I didn't know I could bring. See, remember what Bill was teaching us last week. When we're honest, when we're vulnerable, when we're authentic with God, we're only telling him what he already knows. God knows everything about who we are, every thought, every feeling, every action, every want. God already knows. So when we say, God, I'm going to come before you in honesty and truth today, you're simply saying, God, I'm just going to pull the curtain back on what I think I've been hiding, but you've been aware of all along. So vulnerability before God is just a funny idea. He already knew, but watch this. He longs for us to say, God, this is genuinely where I'm at. And you'll see with Asaph, God not only has these words in here for us, but God had the ability to hear what Asaph said and to be able to show him something he needed desperately. Asaph, seeing the seeming benefits of a wicked life, he contrasts the results of a godless life that of comfort, ease, and abundance with that of the godly life that he's attempting to live, a life filled with affliction and punishment and I'm nothing of value to show for it. In your notes, here's a really important thing we need to identify. A major issue we need to recognize, Asaph is asking, is God good? That's, that's what really Asaph's boiling to the top. God, are you, by nature and in action, are you good? Because if you were, then truly, good people wouldn't prosper, or I'm sorry, if you were truly good, the wicked wouldn't prosper but would be condemned. That's what's consistent with a true God, a good God. 
Hey, God, if you were really good, then those who seek to follow you would actually be a people who are blessed, a people who are rewarded. But I'm seeing exactly the inversion, the exact opposite of those realities are what I'm observing. God, I'm wondering if you're good. If you're here today, because remember, I don't think this is just a, a season or an issue that people have dealt with in the past. You might even be here today going, what on earth happened today? How did Todd know? I don't know anything. I don't know anything about what you're walking through, but God absolutely does. And if you're here today and you're saying, Todd, you don't know how well I can relate to standing on the ledge looking over and thinking that looks better than where I am, then I want you to hear today what Asaph needed and what you need. I want you to hear today what God gave to him as a help and an understanding to really be able to say, Am I good, and is this life worth living? And I'll give you a hint. What it all comes down to, how Asaph brings resolution to this, it all comes back to perspective. It comes back to what set of lenses are you wearing? Are you wearing the lenses that only see this life, or are you wearing the lenses that see eternity? Verse 15, if I had spoken out like that, this is Asaph, he's right, right now he's writing it, but he's kept it to himself, it's been an internal struggle. But if I'd spoken out, if I had accused you, God, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply when? Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood there, the wicked, the arrogant, I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. I so appreciate how Asaph is able to address this issue and bring resolution, not with easy and trite answers, but with perspective. And I want you to see this too. When you and I have been at these stages where we've been at the ledge looking over and wondering what to do, here's what's happened. The way we come off the ledge is by doing what you've done today. You've assembled in the, the place where God's people come. You've assembled to not only praise him, but listen to his word being taught. You've come to God for answers rather than run away from him, which so often people do. I'm troubled, I'm confused, I'm conflicted, I run from God rather than run to him. Asaph said, it was when I came in the sanctuary. God, when I had the perspective of your character, your word, your eternity, then some things began to make sense and I began to see with clarity where it had been muddy before. Look how Asaph puts it. He admits that he was deeply troubled by this perplexity until he came into this place of perspective and perception to know their final destiny. He goes on to say that there is indeed justice for the wicked. They will, on an eternal landscape, be judged. 
as those who've lived apart from God. And the reality is this is what he keeps coming back to to sum it up. This life is short. Eternity is very long. Live life for what really matters rather than what you think this whole thing is about. Instead, live for this long game. Live for the whole thing rather than just this small slice. And when Asaph comes into this place of perspective and he sees there is a long game. The Old Testament's really interesting because the idea that we have in our minds of heaven really is fleshed out and born out in the New Testament. You could probably on two hands put most if all of the Old Testament references to heaven or to eternity. It's very muddy waters to try to understand. And actually this passage, Psalm 73, is one of a few that actually gives clarity of saying, after this life, God, you will take me into glory. As I continue to follow you after this life, there is something for me that is worth it. And something also very true for those who walk apart from you that they will find. I want you to see what's really, to me, important. And you see in there, Asaph put it so well. God, while I was perplexed, God, while I was on the edge, when I was on the ledge, I was like a brute beast. I was just, I was ignorant. I was, and you know, when you've been in this season before and you've really questioned, is this worth it? When you pull out of that, when God brings you what you needed to establish clarity, you realize, what was I thinking? My head was so foggy. I had all these crazy thoughts and ideas. God, thank you for grounding me back in reality. And we realize that's part of the envy cycle, envy problem, is not only do I, I long for something that isn't really real at all, but on top of it, I'm foggy-headed trying to figure out what I actually do know and what I should be able to see. I want you to see something really important, I think, for today that is really profound that we often gloss over. The basis for Asaph's perspective change, I want you to watch this, it wasn't out of a love for God or God's love for him, meaning Asaph didn't come into the tabernacle, didn't come into the sanctuary and say, God, you've loved me so much, I'm going to cast that away and go after you. Now it says that other places in the Bible and other people's experiences, but not Asaph. Nor does he come into the sanctuary and God give him insight on the silver lining of all the trials he's facing. It's not that either. Go back and read the text. Asaph comes into the sanctuary and what hits him between the eyes? God, you are going to judge sinful humanity. And I don't want to be on the other side of that wrath apart from your mercy. It's the fear of hell the fear of an eternity apart from God, the fear of the judgment of God, that motivates and moves Asaph to have clarity and perception so then he can go, that's worth it. Now, let's ask this question. Some of you are sitting there right now and you're going, well, that's kind of poor motivation. You know, like really, like the reason I'm gonna follow you, God, is I'm afraid of hell. That seems kind of like, really? Like there's nothing more, there's nothing more powerful, more. Let me just do this, by show of hands, how many of you would, that are here today would say, that as you were initially responding to God, as you were initially understanding who he was and beginning to realize you need to put your faith in him, how many of you that are here today would say that the reality of a real hell was a big motivator for you? Would you look, just look. Look, look. That's a lot of hands. And here's what I'm saying. It wasn't the only motivator for you. 
It wasn't even today what might be the strongest motivator for you, but it was powerful to realize, God, you're going to deal. You are going to deal. And I don't want to be on the other side of that deal apart from your forgiveness and mercy and grace. I need you. In our American church, we've forgotten this. We've forgotten how important, and I will tell you, just even for me, just having a strong conviction from first service and now, this is a really important thing for us to keep talking about because it's really been important in your journey and your walk with the Lord. The Bible makes it really clear. There's a very real eternity for all of us, and there are not 17 options. There's really only two. And here's the interesting thing. I I would hate for you to somehow miss this today. I kept using words like the wicked. Okay, there's probably very few in this room who'd go, yep. (laughs) Let me just make it real clear, real clear. The Bible, when it uses the word wicked, just the basic definition, those who live apart from God's ways. The Bible also says all throughout, replete, for all of us live apart from God's ways. It's called sin. For all of us have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. So here's what I want you to hear today. The reason why one destination, one eternal reality is true for some and true for others has nothing to do with how much we follow God so well. It has everything to do with what God did for us in the person of Jesus, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection and empty tomb. God going ahead of us. And so what is that that basic question we're all having to answer is simply this. Who is going to receive the wrath of God for you? You or Jesus? That's the gospel. That's the basic essence of what the Bible is teaching us, that God is just. And today from Psalm 73, God will deal no matter how messed up the world can appear to you, no matter how much, even like Asaph, maybe the part of Asaph you, you uh, connect with today is God, it seems like the wicked are never gonna get judged. Like you don't even pay attention. You don't even know what's happening. Take note of what Asaph came to understand. God, you will deal. There's no doubt in my mind. The simple question is who's going to receive the wrath of God for you? You or his one-of-a-kind son he sent in your place to turn aside the wrath of God. Asaph comes to that reality. Here's the interesting thing, by the way. Asaph knew nothing of Jesus. Now, personally, he knew of Messiah. He'd been promised, and he knew that there was going to be someone who's going to come and change and make all things new. Asaph wrote, pre-cross, we look back in faith to the cross, And we say, this cross, God, is what you use to change all of our fates, all of our destinies as a result of what you did for us. Now, I would say, as you think about that, when you think of even the surreality of hell, look at, I said, heaven and hell become much more sharper into clarity in the New Testament. Six times, just in the book of Matthew alone, the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth come up. Look at just one of those ways from Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That reality is absolutely true. Here's a good thing to take stock of. You know, at Trinity Church in the past year, 
We've accepted as a church family a mission of being a people rooted in Jesus reaching our worlds. We've talked a lot about your relational world. Talked a lot about the people you do life with, the people that God has placed you supernaturally, strategically among. I just want you, just for a dose of reality today, just for a reminder that these people that God has placed you there for the purpose of mission, those in your relational world who haven't yet responded to Jesus, right now they're answering the question with, when it comes to who will receive the wrath of God for them, they will. This is what motivates us. This is what moves us because we believe in a real heaven and a real hell. And we know we can't change anyone, but we know that God uses our prayers. We know that God uses our influence. We know that God uses his one-of-a-kind love that we can share with them. Because we know that because God used people like that in our lives. So we're moved to mission because we recognize what's at stake. Asaph came into this clarity he circles back on how great it is to follow God. He says, God, you are proximate and available. God, you provide counsel and understanding. God, you're going to make good on your promises, and you will take your followers into eternal joy. He finishes by saying that, God, you are my everything, where once I questioned you, once I was ready to walk away from you, God, the earth has nothing I desire beside you. You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, the last thing I want to do is knock worship songs, but I do want to say, right? I grew up and, and I was involved in church uh, since I was a kid, but in the 80s and 90s, Don Moen put a song out that was literally this text. It's Psalm 73, but it just seems like when I'm listening to it and I'm now reading this text and you get to the chorus, God is the strength of my heart. God, is, you know, it's a little too jazzy. Because <laughs> I think Asaph is writing this stuff. God, I was ready to walk away from you. There is nothing I desire on earth besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I almost wonder if Asaph was writing those words through tears of just deep gratitude and just great clarity that he had been missing out. He no longer questions the goodness of God internally, but instead he says, I will tell of those I come in contact with of the goodness of your ways. A significant change of attitude in, in his perspective. It's all due to that perception. Where God was at one time held in contempt by Asaph, questioning the goodness of God, now he's held in the highest regard with a sense of the poet clinging to him to be his all in all because he realizes the long game. He realizes the eternity of all of our lives. Simple question as we close today, where are you? Maybe you're here today and you can relate to Asaph's journey. You remember standing at the ledge, looking over, even ready to walk away. But God did something. And maybe you did like Asaph, rather than run from him, you ran to him and God provided clarity. God gave you something to help you understand what you're envying so badly goes bad. It's not the life you think it is. It's not the life you want. Instead, see what a life with me, founded, grounded in me, rooted in me, really looks like. And you would say, Todd, I'm on the other side of that season and I agree, I, I, I find so much relatability to Asaph today. And if that's you today and you're here, I would just say, 
would you continue to live out then Asaph's final words, and I will tell those I come in contact with of the great deeds of God. Be a person of intentional influence based on the story that you have, based on how God has worked in your life. Others of you are here today, and you're actually right in the middle of it. You've been blown away this whole day. I had no idea he was going to talk about this today. That's God connecting dots, God arranging schedules, not me. And if that's you today, I would just encourage you, would you take Asaph's words to heart? Would you hear from someone who's been there and done that? Hear from someone who, like you, his foot was on the ledge. But God brought some clarity and backed him up and helped him realize that following God was so absolutely worth it. Would you take his advice today? Some of you are here today, and, and you're honestly in this other category. You're in the category of what we've talked about today. Those who would say, God, no, thank you. I'll just take it myself. There's coming wrath. There's coming judgment. No, thank you. I know you've done something for me in Jesus, but no, thank you. For a host of reasons, no, thank you. I'll take it myself. I would just say to you, God's greatest act of love was born on a cross, something like that, for someone exactly like you. It doesn't have anything to do with you getting yourself good enough to be presentable to God. No one in this room has. It's not about trying to say, but God, you don't know what I've done. Yes, he does. And he still says, I love you. You're invited. My son died in your place so you don't have to experience God, my justice for sin, my encouragement to you today, reach out to him, respond to him in such a way that simply says, God, I don't any longer want to be on that side of your justice. I want to be on the side of mercy and grace. I surrender and I want to live your life. Look at these words. Jesus addresses the options pretty clearly today. Matthew 16 for whoever wants to lose, or I'm sorry, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? For some that are here today, that has been your perspective, and I totally get it. If you don't think there's anything beyond the grave, why not just live like hell now? But the reality is the Bible is so clear. There is absolutely something on the other side of the grave. Look at these words. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus is clear. This is amazing to me, amazing to me all the time, that we have, you have the incredible privilege of being able to say, yes, God, I respond to you. I want Jesus to take that in my place. Or, no, thank you. God never forces never bends anyone's arm, the invitation is clear. And it's really clear the way Jesus put it there in your notes is how we finish today. The way you save your life is by losing it. The way you save your life is by losing it. Here's our now what idea this week. What do we walk out of here with? What are we to do? By understanding and believing God's lasting promises, they will help you cling to him and avoid what is futile. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today with an incredibly gut-level, honest text. 
We look at Psalm 73 and we find it so relatable to some of the challenges that we have faced. So relatable to some of the temptations that we have had standing on ledges, thinking, God, that that life over there is better than the one you've called me to. So I just want to thank you in the first place that Psalm 73 even exists. Because, God, these are my words. I find myself in them. And I thank you for perspective. The perspective you gave Asaph, the perspective you've given us today. And of all the motivators, and there are many that would draw us to you, but of all the motivators today has landed on the idea, God, that there is a very real day of judgment coming. And we get to choose if it's Jesus that's going to take that judgment or us. Thank you, Father, for sending your son. Thank you that there is mercy and grace that are met with your judgment and wrath. Thank you that you've made that known to us. And God, would you help us be a people who desperately want to make that known to the people that we do life with, the people all over the world. Help us begin with our worlds. Maybe you're here today and you would say, Todd, I've never really made that decision. I've known about it. I've known of Jesus. I've known what God has done, but I've never actually taken a step forward to say, Jesus, I recognize that I'm absolutely lost apart from you. I have no hope. If you'd like to make that decision today, it's literally as easy as the ABCs. It begins with admitting. Admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior and even saying those words, it's doubtful anyone needs to be convinced of that. B, believe. Believe that God sent his one-of-a-kind son into this world to live a sinless life, to die a sacrificial death, to be raised again supernaturally on the third day. Believe that what Jesus did allows him to be the only savior available. C is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, rather than all these religious boxes I could check, I'm gonna choose choose to lean upon in faith what your son did for me. And as a result, I wanna live a life, I wanna walk in steps that follow him and be a person of influence in my world, people who still haven't yet responded to this great news. You can make that decision even where you sit today. My prayer is that you would. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for your amazing love demonstrated to us. We pray in Jesus' name.